This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. More ructions in the mortgage market as fears grow about a house price bubble. If we're not going to buy annuities, what are we going to buy? Meet the pension products of the future. And is the great rally in small cap shares finally drawing to a close? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most downloaded podcast. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford. Hello. And Emma Dunkley. Hello. Plus a special studio guest, Alan Hyam of Fidelity Worldwide Investment. Hello. Earlier this week, Lloyds Bank hit the headlines when it revealed that it will apply a loan-to-income limit to some bigger mortgages. Separately, the Prime Minister and the Governor of the Bank of England made comments in media interviews about the need to remain vigilant about the risks of rapidly rising house prices, although each seemed to delegate responsibility for that job to the other. As if to underscore the point, the Council of Mortgage Lenders revealed a big jump in mortgage advances, while the Office for National Statistics said that house prices were up 8% in the year to March. And as has become usual, prices in London were up a lot more, by 17%. And while all this is going on, would-be borrowers and their lenders are still grappling with the mortgage market review a new set of rules relating to affordability that came into force at the end of April. James Pickford has been keeping an eye on the latest developments. James, what exactly has Lloyds decided and how will it affect the overall mortgage market? Well, Lloyds Banking Group has decided it needs to cut back on its exposure to new lending in London and the South East, which is, as you say, where we've seen the sharpest rises in prices. And it's doing this by saying that uh, where a borrower wants a loan of more than £500,000, it will set a limit of no more than four times that person's income. The new cap won't apply to people who are renewing their mortgages, but it will apply to those who want to take out extra borrowing or those who are remortgaging to move house. And not only does it apply to Lloyds Bank, but all of the subsidiaries of Lloyds Banking Group, which are Halifax, Bank of Scotland, Scottish Widows Bank... Some mortgage brokers think that this may well create pressure for other lenders to follow suit, and none none have yet. And this is because Lloyd's is the biggest player in the market. But at the moment, 
those lenders appear to think that the affordability checks that have been put in place by the MMR are sufficient, but we we wait and see. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about the MMR in the media over the past few weeks. Is there any evidence that that is actually slowing the rate of of mortgage lending or indeed the, the growth in house prices? Well, as you said, it's CML, uh, the Council of Mortgage Lenders, its latest figures, which are for April, show actually that mortgage lending increased. Uh, it was 8% uh, higher than it was in March and 36% up on April last year. But of course, the MMR only actually came in at the end of April. So yet we haven't yet had full data to show the impact of the MMR. But what we have seen is estate agents and brokers reporting that lenders are, are simply struggling to cope with the lengthier interviews imposed by MMR. So it may take three weeks to get even an initial chat with a lender, as opposed to previously just a couple of days. Okay, and lots of talk as well about whether the Bank of England could step in to moderate the the rise in house prices. Do you think that's likely? And if so, what form could that action take? Would it be a rise in interest rates or would it be something else? Certainly, policymakers and regulators could act. Uh, The Financial Policy Committee, which was set up by the government after the crash and sits within the Bank of England, has these tools at its disposal that include setting limits across the industry on the amount that people can borrow compared to the salary or the value of the home they're buying or requiring lenders to hold more capital on risky loans. And it has its next meeting in June, where it is likely to consider whether it should step in to this market, which shows some signs of overheating and which, of course, Mark Carney has described as the biggest threat. One option would be to restrict the number of high loan-to-income mortgages, limiting the number of people borrowing sums on these high multiples. Another, as the David Cameron has suggested, be to consider changes to the government's help-to-buy scheme. But of course, that has less importance for London and the South East. Help to buy has, has had much more of an impact elsewhere in the country. The problem with using interest rates to control the property market is that you might have a big impact on other assets that aren't related to housing and also on people's willingness to borrow or spend. And the impact on these things might actually be more severe. Add to that the fact that we have relatively low inflation and we're still in the early phases of an economic recovery. And it's clear that using interest rates to control property would be a high risk strategy. Finally, Mark Carney has said in the past that uh, that we don't make policy just for inside the circle line. Is this whole talk of a house price bubble really an obsession of the chattering classes in the home counties? Is it something that the rest of the country really feels is, is even happening? Well, for people outside London and the South East, this is to some extent a non-existent debate. Uh, nationwide, you know, you've said London, 18% rises. Uh, the ONS figures, you said, 17% in London versus 8% elsewhere. And we've seen in some regions of the UK, such as Northern Ireland, 0.3%, well below inflation. But what is interesting now is that following those comments by Mark Carney is that policymakers and lenders now seem to be acknowledging that they have to do something about prices in these areas, regardless of the effects elsewhere in the country. James, thanks very much. And house price junkies can get their fix of mortgage market news in FT Money, while FT.com also has an entire page devoted to analysis of the UK's housing market. You can find that at FT.com slash UK house prices. That's all one word. Still to come on the show. Small might be beautiful, but is the long rally in small cap shares finally coming to an end? 
First, though, let's move on to pensions. From last month, it's been much easier to convert your pension savings into an income without having to buy an annuity, either by taking them all as cash or by staying invested and going into what's called drawdown. Next April, the de facto requirement to buy an annuity will disappear altogether, and people will be able to take cash out of their pension pots at retirement without paying punitive tax charges. But if they chose to do so, what might they do with it? There's been no shortage of suggestions. Structured products and buy-to-let property have already been touted, and we've seen new products launched aimed at tiding people over until full flexibility arrived next year. Things like one-year annuities or annuities with break clauses. But what about the longer term? What sorts of product innovations might the industry have up its sleeve, and will they be any good? I'm joined now by Alan Hyam of Fidelity Worldwide Investing. Alan, welcome to the Money Show. First of all, it's probably worth mentioning that our understanding of retirement is changing, and we're hearing things like the cliff edge is a thing of the past, and in the future, it's all going to be about J curves and U curves. What does all that industry lingo mean? Well, it is all very confusing, isn't it? What it refers to is the shape at which your income changes as you move from paid employment into relying on your savings for your income. So the cliff edge point refers to the now really out of date view that you work up to a single point, say sixty five, stop work altogether, and then rely entirely on pension for your income. So you might typically be taking home twenty thousand a year, but then after you stop work, having to tighten the belt a little and perhaps living on twelve or fifteen thousand a year. So that gives you your cliff edge. What we're seeing now is a much more staggered pattern of withdrawing from work. With people staying in part-time or self-employed consultancy work for longer after their full-time work finishes, and looking to supplement that income with returns from their savings, both ISAs and pensions, as they seek to maintain or, in some cases, increase the amount of money they spend in those years. All of us have things we want to do with that spare time, so that might mean more spending in the early years, but. As your money runs out, or as your inclination to do those things dies down, your spending reduces. So you go from the what we would call the go-go years to the slow-go years. Then, as later life passes through, you might get into the no-go areas. And if you sadly become too ill and need extra help in the home, you might need to increase your spending to get some help to make sure that you can continue to live independently. And that gives you your U-shape. And the J shape follows a similar principle, except you have a fairly static period of、uh, income in the early parts. Again, with this last bit of extra spend for any long-term care you might need. And that's a key point, isn't it, about retirement? That, that actually your income needs vary, whereas the traditional annuity、uh, basically either pays out a level income or it pays out an income that rises in line with inflation. So, with those varying income needs in mind, what sort of products are in the pipeline? I think it's worth splitting products into two areas. One is the literal interpretation: what new sort of packages are going to be available for people to buy? And secondly, what services will financial co- companies have to offer customers in order to support them meeting their needs? Products that offer people the prospect of a reliable and stable income while staying invested are going to increase in appearance. Some of these will have guarantees built into them that your income can't fall below a certain level. Those guarantees may be optional; you could switch them on or switch them off, or they may be a mandatory part of the product. 
Whether they'll be good value for money remains to be seen. It's the million-dollar question in many ways. We'll have to see what the pricing is. And the concerns that uh, consumers should have when looking at those products is to see whether they're transparent enough to be understood and whether you can assess who's providing the guarantee, are they going to be there when you really need it, and how much is it really costing you out of your income to have that guarantee. You talk about the sort of products generating income and perhaps products with a, an element of guarantee. Will these be held within the pension wrapper or are they something that will work outside of that? Because, of course, once you take the money out of the wrapper, you're, you're effectively paying tax on it. Yes, and managing the withdrawals from your pension is a crucial element of making good use of these new pension freedoms. We know from our own research that more, more than two-thirds of people approaching retirement haven't yet quite grasped how the tax treatment works and are in danger of paying too much tax by just simply rushing to rip their money out of their pension too eagerly. So these products will probably work in and outside the wrappers, but I think they will be first aimed at the pension money that is inside the wrapper because it's much more tax efficient to keep your money whilst it's still growing and earning investment returns in a tax-free environment. And finally, the government is also changing the rules around long-term care and has in the past expressed a hope that the industry will develop products and solutions to help pay for that. Is there anything coming up that that perhaps combines pension and long-term care provision or is that too much to hope for? I think these will eventually emerge and they'll probably emerge in the marketplace where people are already affluent and have plenty of means to save and want some certainty that their long-term care will be provided for. Industry's record in delivering those products so far, though, has been very checkered, with contracts having small print clauses that allowed the company to put up premiums. So you could have paid a premium for 20 years, and just as you approach the point when you might actually need to claim on the insurance, the uh, price goes up dramatically, leaving you with a choice as to whether to maintain or lose all cover altogether. So it's very early stages. If we look to the US market for a guide as to what might happen, those products are starting to be developed and repackaged. Thanks very much, Alan. FT Money's cover feature this week is devoted to a closer look at these products of the future, how they might work, and whether they'll provide the answer to the challenges of financing retirement. FT Money is part of the Weekend FT, which is on sale on both Saturday and Sunday. You can also read online at any time, ft.com forward slash money. The Weekend FT is also available on mobile devices via a free web app available in both Apple and Android versions. We're always keen to hear your views. You can leave comments on articles on our website or you can email us directly. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. The renowned investor Jim Slater once quipped that elephants don't gallop by which he meant that he invested primarily in small-cap shares rather than large ones because they grow much faster. And he's right. Over long periods of time, on average, smaller shares do indeed outperform larger ones, and there are all sorts of reasons why that should be, not least the fact that they are riskier. But that's also an average. There are periods when small-cap shares do very well indeed, and periods, sometimes quite long ones, where they do very badly. We've just had a period of great outperformance. Since 2009, the mid-cap FTSE 250 index has risen by 140%, and the small-cap index has also more than doubled. Both have comfortably beaten the FTSE 100, which measures the share prices of the biggest companies. 
Now that's partly because many of the shares that have done well, like house builders and retailers, are mid-caps, while many of those that have done badly, like miners and banks, are large. Whatever the reason, it's meant happy days for small-cap fund managers. People like Harry Nimmo, Giles Hargreave, Alex Wright, Julie Dean and Mark Slater, son of the aforementioned Jim, have posted stellar returns. But all good things must come to an end at some time, and it's that time now. Emma Dunkley joins me. Emma, is there any evidence that the tide is turning now for smaller cap shares? Yes, as you explained, small and medium-sized companies had a fantastic run in the past five years since the financial crisis. And as you say, this is because smaller and medium-sized companies tend to exhibit faster and larger growth than bigger firms when there's an economic recovery. However, there has been a bit of a sea change since around March. And this really started in the US when there was a bit of a sell-off in technology shares. Some technology companies even plummeted as much as 50%. Since then, there's been a sort of contagion effect, which has meant that other types of companies in other business sectors, not necessarily technology, have also seen share prices fall. And this has had a contagion effect even in companies in the UK, specifically within the smaller and medium-sized company sector. Why is the love affair on the wane now? Is it because of the withdrawal of monetary stimulus or are people just worried that they've gone up too much and become too expensive? One of the major factors is that these companies have had such a fantastic run over the past five years that they're now looking extremely expensive. So the FTSE 250, which comprises medium-sized companies, is currently trading at a ratio of 19 times price to earnings, which makes these companies look pretty expensive. So some investors are actually taking profits, which is where they sell out of these shares and capture the gains that they've made and perhaps will reinvest in cheaper areas. But at the same time, there has been a tapering of quantitative easing in the US while it's kind of halted in the UK. This easy money, which has flooded the economy, has over the past few years found its way into higher risk assets such as smaller and medium sized companies in a bid among investors to try and gain returns. However, as the taps are turned off, stemming the tide of this easy money, investors are pulling away from these higher-risk companies and putting their cash elsewhere. You mentioned that small companies tend to do very well when economies are recovering. On the news this week, we've heard lots about soaring house prices and booming retail sales. Isn't it rather odd that as all this evidence grows of the UK economy recovering very fast, the shares that are supposedly best placed to benefit from that are actually starting to decline in value? It does seem like a bit of a contradiction, but speaking to investors and fund managers this week, they say it's a case of some people just don't know how to interpret the data. So on the one side, you have all these headlines saying that house prices are hitting all-time highs, retail sales are picking up, so it seems like the economic recovery is well underway. However, at the same time, there's a degree of uncertainty, and some investors aren't so bullish on placing money into these higher-risk areas. Some investors also feel that mid-cap and small-cap shares are looking pretty frothy. You mentioned you've spoken to lots of uh, investors and fund managers this week. If they're pulling out of small-caps, what are they going into? Some of these fund managers, such as Julie Dean at Schroeder's, who runs UK Opportunities Fund, has typically had a mid-cap bias in her fund where she buys medium-sized companies that exhibit growth. So they've really grown over the past five years and she's had a fantastic run. However, in her recent investment update, she noted that actually 
due to the sell-off in these areas, she's moving out of some of these companies and looking for larger cap, more defensive stocks that can weather any sort of economic sensitivity. Furthermore, Jeremy Lang, a fund manager at Ardevra, also said that he's turning towards more boring large cap shares, which again are less economically sensitive. So, for example, he has recently bought two utilities companies where he believes the share price has been hit and come under pressure due to political issues, but in fact, the underlying businesses are quite sound. Thank you very much, Emma. And if you want to know where to put your cash to work, there are always plenty of ideas in FT Money, and this week is no exception. Other highlights from this weekend's paper, we've more on the costs of investing. We look at the latest data from the Financial Ombudsman Service to find out what consumers have been complaining about over the past year. And is it true that £15,000 a year is enough to buy you happiness in retirement, as one pension provider claimed this week? We're always keen to hear from readers and listeners. If you want to let us know about a hot topic or share your thoughts, you can do so via Twitter. The handle is FTMoney. Or you can go online to ft.com forward slash money and leave comments on the foot of articles. Or you can email us. The address, once again, is money at ft.com. We will be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me, James, Emma and our special studio guest, Alan Hyam from Fidelity Worldwide Investment. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.